You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the Charles P. McQuaid Professor of Finance at the Booth School of Business in the University of Chicago. Holding a PhD in finance from Wharton, he has served as the president of the Western Finance Association and the director of the American Finance Association, and has almost 20,000 citations across several highly renowned papers. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Lubis Pastor. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. So firstly, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and how you got into finance and economics. Oh, well, I've, I've been doing this for over 20 years. I've been teaching and doing research at Chicago Booth. So that's the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago. I'm interested in finance and economics broadly. How I got into this? Well, when I was a kid, I was quite interested in mathematics and then, uh, you know, growing up in what used to be Czechoslovakia, we had uh, this velvet revolution when communists were removed from power. So I saw the society changing in front of my eyes as a 15-year-old. That made me interested in society and the world at large and, and the economy. You know, how do you transition to the market economy? So then I combined my passions for math and, and society, and I, I ended up in economics. Leadership. The Final Frontier. These are the voyages of the Starfleet Leadership Academy. Its ongoing mission to develop leaders through Star Trek. To boldly go where no podcast has gone before. A leadership development podcast told through the lens of Star Trek. The Starfleet Leadership Academy. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Right. Um, and can you please tell us a bit more about um, your your research fields, um, specifically, you know, what you've researched in the past and what your current research interests are? Sure. So uh, I do research in financial economics and I have a wide variety of, of interests. Recently, I've been working on sustainable investing or, or ESG investing. I've also done work on asset management, uh, let's say mutual funds, how they perform. Um, I've done a fair amount of work on uh, at the intersection of political economy and, and finance. So analyzing stock returns uh, under different administrations, looking at the effects of income inequality on um, populism, uh, that sort of stuff. Um, uh, earlier in my career, I also did work on, uh, on liquidity, liquidity risk in particular, um, as well as a fair amount of work on, on financial econometrics. Okay, um, so today I wanted to talk to you primarily about some of the research you've conducted um, on financial markets and monetary policy, um, starting with the implications of the pandemic on investors and returns. So in late 2020, you co-wrote a paper titled Mutual Fund Performance and Flows During the COVID-19 Crisis, which presented a comprehensive analysis of, of the performance of actively managed American mutual funds um, during the 2020 COVID-19 crisis. Um, one of the key findings of this paper was that almost three quarter uh, three quarters of active funds underperformed passive benchmarks such as the S&P 500 during the crisis. Um, so Dr. Pastor, can you please tell us about how the pandemic affected markets and mutual funds in, in 2020 and what were the reasons for this? 
Yeah, so you just uh, you, you mentioned our main result. Uh, we didn't know going in how well active funds performed relative to their passive benchmarks. And uh, indeed, almost three quarters of them underperformed uh, uh, the S&P 500 during the 10-week period in which the crisis was at, at its worst. So we, we look at a period in, in March and April of 2020, which is when you know markets uh, experienced uh, a lot of turmoil. And why did we do that? We because there's this uh, this well-known fact that actively managed mutual funds tend to underperform their passive benchmarks over long periods of time, and people tend to attribute this finding, or some people attribute this finding to the fact that active funds, well, they may not perform well overall, but they tend to perform well precisely when we need it, need them to. And that's during recessions, during crises. So we, we set out to test that hypothesis um, in the COVID crisis. You know, did they really perform unusually well during the COVID crisis, providing the hedge that investors are looking for? And the answer was a resounding no. Um, instead of outperforming, as that hypothesis would suggest, they actually underperformed. So that, that's our main result. We also have some results on sustainability, how investors um, tended to favor sustainable funds, so high ESG funds uh, during the COVID crisis. And that's related to a second hypothesis that we, we examined. Uh, essentially, again, a popular argument out there is that sustainability is a, is a luxury good, that we care about it only when things are going well. You know, we're wealthy enough to care about the climate, uh, et cetera. Whereas, you know, if we were poor, we, we would care about other things. Well, that turns out not to be the case um, in, in 2020, because even, even at the, the height of the crisis uh, in the spring of 2020, uh, it turns out investors continued pouring money into, into sustainable uh, mutual funds. Uh, so, or, you know, put differently, there were outflows out of other funds, but not, not out of uh, sustainable funds. So long story short, uh, sounds like... Um, Investors didn't really think of uh, sustainability as a as a luxury good, right? Um, so both in in this paper and in a subsequent paper titled "Sustainable Investing in Equilibrium," you talk about the advantages of high ESG investments. You noted that in equilibrium, green assets have low expected returns because investors enjoy holding them, and because green assets hedge climate risk. Um, green assets, nevertheless, outperform when positive shocks hit the ESG factor which captures shifts in consumers' tastes for green products and investors' tastes for green holdings. So, Dr. Passer, can you please tell us a bit more about how high ESG investments and how their returns have, how their returns have historically compared and their prospects for the future? Yeah, that's a, that's a broad, you know, multi-trillion dollar question. Uh, first of all, what, what do we mean by high ESG investments? We mean investments in, let's say, green bonds or, or in, in the stocks of companies that are rated highly on ESG, environmental, social, and governance terms by ESG rating agencies. So loosely speaking, these are investments in firms that, that uh, the rating agencies view as, as, as responsible. And I think our main point in uh, this duo of papers that uh, Rob Stambo and uh, Luke Taylor and I have um, on this topic, our main point is that in the long run, uh, investors should expect to earn lower returns on, on green investments. And uh, you, you've mentioned the two reasons. The, the main one being that investors enjoy holding uh, green assets. They derive utility from holding green assets. So in equilibrium, um, the prices of these assets will be higher because there's so much demand for them, 
And then as a result of their high price, their expected return going forward is lower. Or flipping this around, if you take brown assets, so you know, assets of firms that are not viewed as, as socially responsible, investors dislike holding them. So, in, in, so, so their price will end up being lower because there's, there's less demand for them. And uh, therefore, um, the expected return on brown assets must be higher to compensate uh, investors for the, you know, for the fact that they have to hold them. So th- those are really our main findings. Now, um, there are transition periods when investors' tastes are shifting from, um, you know, shifting towards a green assets. And, and we argue in, in one of our papers that we just went through a decade, the 2010s, in which investor tastes continued shifting towards green investments and, and green products. So in particular, at the beginning of the previous decade, we, we did not expect to see such a, such a major shift towards uh, green assets and, and green products uh, in the following decade. As a result of this unexpected shift in tastes, green assets actually performed very well in the 2010s. So green stocks outperformed green bond, uh, sorry, green stocks outperformed uh, brown stocks, and uh, we, we saw similar evidence in, in, in bonds. Um, but that does not mean that uh, green assets will outperform brown in the future. In fact, um, we show examples and, and, and explain why, uh, if anything, it, it, it could be the other way around, that, uh, that the strong performance of green assets in the 2010s is likely to, to have come at the expense of, of future uh, returns. In fact, we, we saw some of it kind of out of sample in 2021, so last year, um, when the green assets uh, started underperforming uh, brown assets. Uh, so, you know, perhaps uh, th- that is uh, more typical than what we had seen previously in the 2010s. So in your research, um, does, this, does this tend to be a particular concern among investors, um, whether or not a stock is um, socially responsible? Um, uh, you know, conventional economics would have us believe that, um, you know, investors care um, purely about profit. Um, however, I think with shifting attitudes, that may or may not be the case. So um, in, in your research, to what extent uh, do investors actually care about um, you know, the, the, how socially responsible the, the companies they invest in are? Yeah, uh, they, they do care. So in, we have both theoretical and empirical work on this. In our theory, we model investors who care about financial payoffs or profits, like you said, and also about the greenness of their holdings. Okay, so in our theoretical model, investors derive pleasure from holding green assets and displeasure from holding brown assets, and then we basically figure out what the equilibrium looks like in that economy. In other words, um, what will be the prices of green assets and brown assets when supply meets demand? And it's based on that framework that we draw the conclusion that um, in the long run, green assets uh, should deliver lower returns than uh, than brown assets. So next, I wanted to ask you about um, what, in my opinion, is one of the most um, interesting papers I've read in a long time titled Political Cycles and Stock Returns. So political administrations have historically been both credited and, and blamed for economic performance during their terms by the media, and they've become sort of a focal point um, of, of elections. So the abstract um, of the paper states, quote, the terms by the, sorry, um, the, the model predicts higher average stock market returns under Democratic presidents explaining the well-known presidential puzzle. The model can also explain why economic growth has been faster under Democratic presidencies. In the data, Democratic voters are more risk-averse and risk aversion declines during Democratic presidencies. 
public workers vote Democrat, and while entrepreneurs vote Republican. So Dr. Pester, can you please tell us a bit more about what's behind these deferring trends? Are are administrations really responsible for these discrepancies? In other words, are they driving the, the, the economic different economic performance during their terms, or do they simply tend to be elected during different points in the economic cycle? Yeah, so we argue it's the latter. We argue that it's not so much about what administrations do as um, when they get elected. And uh, essentially, loosely speaking, Democrats tend to get elected in bad times and Republicans tend to get elected in good times. But uh, let me let me uh, give you some background on what motivated this, uh, this research. So there's this uh, puzzling fact that has been shown by others, which is that the, the stock market has, has performed much better on average under Democratic presidents than under Republican presidents. So if you go back like 100 years, uh, under Democrats, uh, the stock market returned more than 10% per year on average, um, whereas uh, in, in excess of the risk-free asset like, like a T-bill, whereas under Republicans, uh, actually the stock market underperformed uh, the T-bill uh, very slightly, essentially matched it. So there's an 11% per year gap between the average returns under Democratic presidents uh, and Republican presidents. And it's highly economically significant and highly statistically significant. So, so what's responsible for it? That, that's our motivation. Why, why does the stock market perform so much better under Democrats? Is it something Democrats do? Well, it, not at first sight, right? Because uh, you know, we tend to think of uh, Republicans as being more pro-business, whereas Democrats tend to care more about sort of social, social insurance, social justice, etc. And uh, indeed, you know, even though the, the question is a very partisan one, uh, we end up with a completely nonpartisan answer. Uh, basically, arguing it's not that one party is better than the other at, at managing the economy. It's just that Democrats tend to get elected in bad times um, when expected stock returns are high. And Republicans tend to get elected in good times when expected returns are low. Okay, so, so maybe let me elaborate a bit more on, on why that is. You know, Democrats, they tend to prefer more redistribution, right? They tend to prefer higher taxes, more public spending. So if you're highly risk averse, then uh, you, you tend to be a Democratic voter because, you know, you, you, you never know. You may find yourself in a situation where you will benefit from, from redistribution. Whereas... Um, Republican voters tend to be more risk, uh, more risk tolerant. They, they're not so risk averse. Uh, they, they often start businesses. They like to take risk. So, so think about what happens when risk aversion changes over time. Okay. And how, how should you imagine that? Well, during crises, like imagine 2008, during financial crises, risk aversion tends to be high. Okay. During the Great Depression, risk aversion was high. During the COVID crisis, risk aversion was high. At those times when risk conversion is high, when we are in a crisis, people tend to vote Democrat because they they see social insurance. They they want to have insurance because they're so highly um, risk averse. So it, it's not a coincidence that you know Barack Obama, a Democrat, was elected in November two thousand eight at the height of the financial crisis. It's it's not a coincidence that. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt was elected in 1932 uh, during the Great Depression. Um, I would argue it's not a coincidence Joe Biden was elected in um, in, in the COVID crisis of, of 2020. Um, so, um, so I, I think I think I think when a Democrat comes in in the middle of a crisis, stock prices are low, and the risk premium going forward is high. So, 
So that's why under democratic presidents, even if they were to play golf for, for eight years, uh, we would see we would see high high stock returns. Whereas you see the opposite under Republicans. Republicans come in tend to be elected in good times. Uh, so um, um, so on average, in good times, prices are already pretty high. And the expected return going forward is, is is not as high as as under Democrats. So that's kind of that that's our story. So in my view, looking at um, the different the different um, so, sorts of policy agendas that that typically characterize Democratic and Republican administrations, it would seem to me that um, the these two trends are um, you know almost the the opposite of, of what they should be. So in, in bad times when the economy is struggling, um, you'd think that um, the, the most beneficial thing to do would be to perhaps um, cut taxes to try and get rid of regulation, to encourage, to make it easier to do business, um, the sorts of things that, that Republican presidents would do. And then when times are good, you think that people wouldn't mind, um, you know, redistributing the wealth, essentially, when, when um, you know, the economy is booming, perhaps people wouldn't mind, um, you know, spreading, pursuing those um, high spending policies or, or the, the sorts of um, the sorts of plans that, that we tr- um, traditionally see from Democrats. So do you think that this trend um, is really is, is correct in the sense that Democratic presidencies do better in bad times and Republican presidencies and Republican agendas do better in, in good times, or, or is it the other way around? So your hypothesis is, is very sensible. Uh, it just, it turns out not to be supported in, in the data, right? It just turns out that people do tend to vote Democrat uh, or they tend to elect a Democratic president in, in, during crises. Uh, it just, it's a, it's a fact. I mean, look, look at the data. Um, now, we're, we're not saying that Democrats are better at managing uh, the economy in bad times. We're not saying Republicans are worse at managing the economy. It, it's we are simply saying that they tend to get elected at those times, right? No, I'm and, I'm asking. Do you think it's the 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 fact that they tend to get elected at different times? Do you think that those times are ideal, or um, are, are we dealing with some sort of you know mismatched um, voter preferences? Yeah, good question. Uh, we don't take a stand on this, and and uh, yeah, we kind of don't need to. So, in the model that you mentioned that we have, Democrats and Republicans differ only in the level of taxation that they impose on the economy. So, Democrats levy higher taxes and redistribute more. Republicans levy lower taxes and redistribute less, and they manage the economy equally well. Okay, so we don't distinguish between between the two parties in any way other than the tax rate. So I could I could uh, speculate about differences between these two parties, but uh, I, I, I'd rather not to. The interesting thing is when, that people people do vote Democrat in, in bad times and they do vote Republican in good times. Which, you know, whether that's the right thing to do, uh, you know, it's not 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 for me to judge. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Um, finally, I wanted to ask you about a humorously named paper that um, you published a while back titled 50 Shades of QE, um, Quantitative Easing, Breaking Down the Conflict of Interest that Occurs When Central Banks Self-Evaluate. Um, you stated that, quote, central banks sometimes evaluate their own policies to assess the inherent conflict of interest. We compare the research findings of central bank researchers and academic economists regarding the macroeconomic effects of quantitative easing. Um, so I, I think um, this the central bank is one of those rare situations in which we would you know, view uh, self-evaluations as, as legitimate um, despite the vested interest. Um, so Dr. Pester, what were the, the differences you found between the evaluations conducted by independent economists as compared to those self-evaluations? 
Yeah, so we found that when central bank economists um, do research on the effectiveness of quantitative easing, they find QE to be more effective than when academic economists conduct that kind of research. That, that's our main finding. Um, specifically, we look at all studies, um, and there were a little over 50 of them, which is why uh, we called the paper what we did. Um, we look at all studies that have analyzed the effectiveness of QE in um, the US, Europe, and, and, and Great Britain. And we looked at, you know, how large uh, are the effects that they estimate? Are they statistically significant? What type of language do authors use when they describe their findings? And uh, however we look at the, uh, the, the data, we find that when a central banker uh, talks about QE, they, they end up being, being more optimistic about uh, the effectiveness of the policy uh, compared to an academic. So that, that's our main finding. We could, we could talk about the interpretations um, if, if you like. Um, so is it possible that um, when central bankers are, are doing these sorts of um, evaluations, that they perhaps have access to more data um, being on the inside than academic economists, or are they working with exactly the same data sets and drawing different conclusions? Yeah, great question. Uh, I would say that because in this case, we're looking at uh, the macroeconomic effectiveness, so things like output and inflation, I don't think central bankers have proprietary data uh, or much proprietary data um, about those particular questions. I do think that central bankers are in a great position to evaluate the effectiveness of QE. They have just the right knowledge. They do have great data. They, uh, you know, they know exactly how QE is executed. So they are in a perfect position to do the evaluation. Just like, let's say, a pharmaceutical company is in a perfect position to evaluate the effectiveness of its own drugs, right? If, if, you're the, if, you, if you, you, you come up with a new vaccine against COVID, you know exactly how you came up with that vaccine. You have just the right people to evaluate the effectiveness uh, of the vaccine. You have access to, to the patients. So it makes perfect sense for pharmaceutical companies to evaluate the effectiveness of their own drugs. But we also want an independent party to um, to, to do the evaluation. And um, it, it seems that, um, you know, what's happening um, in economics is not unlike what's happening in biomedical research, that when uh, when independent parties um, do the evaluation, they tend to find uh, somewhat, uh, somewhat less optimistic uh, outcomes. Do you think um, any of those differences in how optimistic the outcomes are um, is because um, central bankers, um, being part of the central bank, have um, uh, some sort of an interest in making um, the, their their policies appear more successful than they might actually be? Um, obviously, the central bank is independent from any of the political branches of government, so it's hard to see why um, central bankers would have an interest. It's not like they're trying to appease voters or anything, but nonetheless, um, to, to the extent that the central bank is, is politic, politicized or politically influenced, do you think that there is some sort of interest for them to make themselves appear, you know, to, to glorify themselves essentially? Well, we, we could only speculate uh, about that. And I, I wouldn't go that far. I think central bankers and uh, uh, central banks are institutions of the highest integrity and they care very much about their reputation. So uh, I, I would like to begin with that. We are certainly not uh, questioning the credibility of, of central banks uh, as, as a whole. I also don't think it's, it's political pressure that's giving rise to this uh, apparent bias in, in, in research outcomes. Um, it's more likely, and we have some evidence suggesting that there's uh, something going on uh, inside the organization, like like career concerns. You know, so let me let me give a parallel to again pharmaceutical research. Suppose you are 
a, a, a researcher and uh, you're working on a you know a, a, a certain certain drug, let's say, and there's a particular aspect where you know what your boss wants you to find. Well, perhaps you're more likely to to find it uh, in order to make your boss uh, boss happy. Um, I, whether that's going on for sure, we there's no, we don't have any smoking gun that would point in that direction. Uh, we we have some indirect evidence suggesting that uh, central bank researchers who do find stronger effects of QE are more likely to get promoted. Uh, so we actually looked at the CVs of central bank economists who wrote those uh, those fifty four studies, and we analyzed, you know, what did they find, when did they get promoted, etc. So we do find some relation to promotions which is consistent with the idea that the career concerns are playing a role. And um, along the same lines, we have, again, somewhat weak statistical evidence that um, central bank economists of the Bundesbank, the, the German uh, central bank, tend to, um, tend to be very different from other central bankers. They, they tend to find QE to be less effective, even compared to, to academic economists. And that also seems consistent with career concerns because the leadership, the management of uh, the Deutsche Bundesbank, the German central bank, has been known to be, you know, not not all that friendly to, to QE over the past uh, decade or so. Um, Germany has been concerned about redistribution within uh, within Europe uh, for quite some time. Um, so, again, no smoking gun, but we have we have multiple types of evidence uh, consistent with the idea that uh, career concerns could be playing a role. And so, um, Leslie, I just wanted to uh, understand how, you know, two economists looking, I mean, you, you indicated there, there was very little difference in proprietary information. So how can two economists looking at the same data, conducting the same calculations, um, or, or, you know, broadly looking for the same answers, um, vary so wildly among two different, you know, not only just one central banker and one economist, but central bankers as a whole and academic economists as a whole, how can those, um, you know, given the objectivity of you know mathematics and, and mathematical analysis. How can they you know differ so um, so obviously? Yeah, good question. Um, so there are multiple methodological choices you have to make when conducting the analysis. For example, if you're using a DSGE model, so a general equilibrium model um, of the kind that are popular, especially among central bankers. You have choices to make about what goes into the model and what doesn't. Um, do financial institutions appear in the model? How do they appear? What kind of constraints do they face? What do people care about um, in, in your model, uh, etc.? If you're conducting an econometric analysis, and we have a lot of those studies as well, these are the so-called uh, VAR studies or vector autoregression-based studies, you have a different uh, type of choices uh, that, that, that you're making. For example, um, you have to decide which variables go in, um, which variables um, don't go in, um, in into the regression. Um, are you going to include logarithms of, of your variables or squares, you know, nonlinear functions? Um, so there are choices you can make. So those choices appear to make a difference. And in addition, we find some differences in, in how central bankers and academics describe their results. So even, even if they find the same result, um, the language that central bankers use when describing QE seems to be more favorable. There are more positive adjectives and, and fewer uh, ne negative adjectives. Okay. Um, well, those are all the questions I, I have for you today. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Um, Dr. Pastor, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, likewise. The pleasure is mine. Uh, best of luck.
Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.